Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right. Welcome back to the show. The last show of the actual season here, the Yahoo Sports College Podcast. It's the wee hours of Tuesday morning Pacific time. And Pete Thamel, we are live in your hotel room to discuss what the hell happened at Levi's Stadium. Can you please summarize it for me? Well, first of all, I'm going to say that if the phone rings and our podcast listeners hear it, it's because security is calling because we're (laughs) one of the two of us may have a louder voice. I'm not going to say who. So um, there's like a 50 50 chance, basically, that uh, hotel security is going to call because we were so dismayed by the Crimson Tide's performance that would actually require security. They should have come at halftime and resuscitated Alabama's common sense sensibilities and actually told them to call a couple run plays on on third down so they didn't get behind uh i'm shocked that we're sitting here right now now mind you we should probably start by just reminding everyone of all the people in the yahoo college sports podcast staff and all of our bloggers only one picked clemson to win the game pat oh Murray. we should definitely remind everybody of that yes. sure yes pat do you know do you, do you remember who that was i don't i do not recall as a matter of fact all right it was the only albanian who participated We'll just, we'll just let the listeners know that. Congratulations, Pete Thamel, on the correct pick of the Clemson Tigers. But surely you did not see 44-16 to 16 coming. I don't think Dabo's wife saw 44-16 to 16 coming. I mean, who could have, like, I mean, this Alabama team, like, everybody had their stories ready to send on the greatest team in the history of the world combined and Nick Saban is secretary at the Belmont and, and like, no, like, did Clemson could Clemson have won? Sure. Did I think they would? I actually did. Like I like some matchups. You know, Alabama had some vulnerabilities, but did I see them absolutely ragdolling them into another universe? No. Like I don't. Anyone who really called this is just a sideways blowout. I give you a lot of credit. Uh, you you should knock Miss Cleo off late night television if you're doing that. Yeah, I don't think anybody clearly saw this coming. Uh... It was a a great performance by Clemson. They made plays. They avoided mistakes. Trevor Lawrence, incredible. Receiving court, incredible. Defense, tough. Uh, some great calls by Brent Venables. Uh, but on the other hand, Alabama, what happened there? I mean, just, you know, the, you become so accustomed to seeing Nick Saban teams 
perform so well in these big moments and they just they made so many mistakes you know the turnovers the penalties the terrible fake kick uh some weird play calls the usual kicking game snafus but uh it was just shocking didn't you think to see a Saban team perform like that on that stage yeah, a couple of things stand out to me. You see the six penalties for 60 yards, Pat. And again, like the false start on the goal line really jumps out when you look back. The the little like booty shake 15-yard penalty uh, that gave him 15 extra yards that set up Clemson's last score of the first half. Like that shouldn't happen in a Nick Saban coach team. The, the other one that really stands out was the failure to stop Clemson on third down. Uh, the Tigers finished the game 10 of 15. That was a little bit that, – that's actually – they were actually better than that. Because, like, the whole fourth quarter of this game didn't count. Like, it was – like, it just didn't count. Like, 44-16 could have been, you know, if you extrapolate it out, it really was like, you know, 65-21, to 21, right? Like, if you yeah. really did – because it's basically – the entire fourth quarter went into, like, a tortoise shell of just running the – it was like four corners. Dean Smith would have been proud. Yeah. And so, I mean, this could have been much worse, which is the scariest part of it all. And, again – Tua has a terrible mistake to start the game, right? That's where you have to start. All like Of all the Alabama meltdown conversations, it all starts with Tua's terrible decision. And obviously the pick six going a long way the uh, the other way by – who was that? Remind me. It wasn't Mullen. He had the sack on the corner blitz. It was – Terrell? Terrell, yeah, yeah. The other corner. And uh, right, right when Terrell started and right when Terrell did that, everything fell apart. And what was probably most disappointing from an Alabama standpoint is, like, there was no one to rally around. There was no, like, you know, come-together person. There was no leadership. I just really feel like – I mean, it was a wire-to-wire meltdown. What else can you call it, Pat? Like, Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, it was, but at the same time, they were ahead 16-14. to 14, And at the, during that time, left points on the board. Ended up significantly more yardage, I'm pretty sure, at halftime. Uh, and I think they ended the game with more yardage as well. So it's like they they moved, yeah they all right yeah they ended up with forty more yards uh, or no no forty less yards uh, for the game but they moved the ball a lot they just when it was key situations third down conversions red zone it was one mistake after another so you know <clears throat> I kept you kept kind of waiting for Alabama to overcome itself or at least I did you know it's like okay they'll stop making mistakes now they've got a 16-14 lead they will settle in you know two will stop throwing interceptions and they will run the ball when they're supposed to run the ball and then they'll you know execute in the red zone and then it just never happened and I think that the more it didn't happen the more confidence obviously Clemson got and uh the more this thing kind of snowballed uh what do you think was this Aside from the the you know the spectacular performance by by the young guys again for Clemson, what what do you take away uh, from from the Alabama the individual performances for Alabama? You know, I feel like two is human, right? After a pretty much a full season of not being human, you, you saw some vulnerabilities in the George game, and there's been some injury stuff. I don't think injury affected him tonight at all, um, but you did see. All right, you know what? This is a guy who started. 15 college games or whatever it is you know this guy has a ways to go uh the first like the, the cross field pass obviously that got intercepted which is a terrible decision then when he threw the ball downfield it's just a terrible throw 
Yeah. You know, it was like a bad read. Triple coverage. Yes, it was a bad read and a bad throw. Like, everything about that was terrible. But you wonder if, as he went on the season, this feeling of invincibility came over him where he could make hero throws like that. And obviously he's accurate. He's supremely accurate downfield. But that, to me, like, if you have to start, like, pointing blame and placing blame, Tua gets a lot of the blame. Tua was bad tonight. He was 22 of 34 for 295. Uh, two touchdowns, obviously. But, like, he wasn't great. Um, the next place I think you go in Alabama is the offensive line. There was no push. Uh, Clemson had seven TFLs. They had two sacks. And there was never that feeling. Here's the thing. It's, it's interesting. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, Pat. So 44-16 is essentially the same way that Alabama beat Notre Dame in that 2012 title game. It's a pretty, pretty similar score. I, I don't remember. 42-14. So same, same spread. Yes, exactly. Now – in that game, Notre Dame wasn't in it for a snap. No. You watch you watched two series, and you are like, good night, Irene. This yeah. is over. Yeah. Uh, I filed my story at halftime of that game. There was, there was no chance. Now, in this game, the, the worst part if you're an Alabama fan is, like, you had a chance in this game. You, right. were, you were beaten soundly, but you were not overwhelmed. They, they were better than you, but they weren't 30 points better than you. And that's what has to nag at you if you're Nick Saban. I thought Mike Loxley called a terrible game. Um, I thought defensively there was there was little resistance, little adjustment, little there was just little there. Um, you know, Quinn Williams had a great game individually in the Alabama defense. Other than that, that's it. I that was it was there was there was little else. I expect one of the reverberations from this game to be significant staff changes at Alabama, which were coming already. Loxley is obviously gone. You know, they have their whole cadre of analysts, and there's going to be some shakeups and some moves. Uh, certainly special teams, which we'll get into, was, was an obvious area of fault tonight. But when you talk about individuals for Alabama, I start at Tua, I go to the O-line, and then I would go to just general defensive malaise. I mean – Clemson averaged 7.7 yards a play. Wow, that's even more than they averaged during the season. And during the season, they averaged a lot. They averaged 7.3 during the season. And they played in the ACC. So this is an interesting little nugget for our listeners. Uh, with about two minutes left in the game, Pat and I diligently had our heads down writing our columns for Yahoo, and there was screaming in the press box. And that was Tony Elliott, the Clemson O.C., yelling two of three, how about the ACC now? Change the narrative. Now, obviously, most of our listeners have never met Tony Elliott. He's like the most mild-mannered, composed, he's an engineer. Offensive coordinator for Clemson. Sorry. Clemson's OC and play caller, one of the bright young coaches in the country who's kind of stayed with Dabo for longer than anyone thought and you know turned down chances to go to UCF, Mississippi State, some other places, and he's the – person you would least now Dabo would do that no problem <laughs> but Tony Elliott yelling it you could tell there, there was like a little inner narrative within their program of like f all these guys this yeah. SEC dominance this we didn't play anybody like they're like hey this was twice in three years and right. and they abs 7.7 yards of play that's like a whack number yeah, like that's yeah. that I mean that that will be seared in Nick Saban's brain in the offseason and I expect uh Perhaps a change at defensive coordinator. Uh, yeah, the, there could be several uh, staff changes uh, coming at Alabama, I think. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, Chris Felica, the great statistician for uh, ESPN, pointed out first time in 131 games for Alabama against Power 5 competition, 
no sacks and no turnovers forced, which is unbelievable because those are two things that are part and parcel of Nick Saban defense. And here's the thing, <clears throat> you know, and it, it it's funny. Usually these things become a little more obvious in hindsight, um, but you start looking that Alabama machine really slowed down late in the season, probably because they were playing good competition. When they played Georgia, Oklahoma, Clemson, they forced a grand total of zero turnovers in those games. They committed four, so they were a minus four in the postseason, uh, and that'll get you beat against good competition. It nearly got them beat. They were minus two against Georgia, both bad Tua interceptions, and then they had two more bad Tua interceptions this game, but this is Clemson. This isn't Georgia, and Clemson absolutely took advantage. Um... You know, just really shocking to me that that a Nick Saban defense went three straight games without forcing a turnover. Um, uh, you mentioned you you touched briefly on it, uh, uh, Pete, but the uh, the special teams and the the special team play that jumped out the most obviously was the horrendous fake field goal. You talked to some people that were involved in that play. What did what did you get out of that from the locker room? We could actually do like an entire bad fake kick podcast at some point in like May after the Derby when there's nothing to do. We can do a dueling fake kick podcast. Which fake kick was worse? Was it Kirby Smart fake punt on fourth and 11, which I would still maintain is worst. But there is now an argument of the fourth and sixth fake field goal. So I got a, I got a text tonight at way too late in the morning, by the way, East Coast time from a special teams coach who I know. <laughs> he said. <clears throat> Second worst fake in college football history behind Georgia fourth and 11 versus safe. So I've learned a lot about punt safe and field goal safe in the last month. Way more than I ever want to know. I wish I could start forgetting what I've learned about this. So I went in Alabama locker room, and obviously losing locker rooms are really interesting places. And none of our listeners have probably ever been in, like, a losing locker room after, like, a championship loss. The image I'll never forget, I wrote in my notebook, it was 9.37 p.m. Tua walks in after his interview, and he puts a towel over his head. And he's in the first locker room stall. And he's sitting there. And a manager comes over and he just sticks out his leg and the guy cuts the tape off. And Tua just, like, wasn't moving. Like, he realized, I have to, like, cut my ankle tape off, shower, and leave. Yeah. But just, you, you know, you, you see the utter devastation. Yeah. What these guys put in, what it means, it's a really interesting place. So I walk in after they open it and people are scattered around. And it's funny, when you're a national reporter, like, you know, you know guys' names and numbers, but you're always sort of tiptoeing around because, quite frankly, a lot of them don't have clothes on. They certainly don't have their uniform on. Right. There's just this, like, there's piles for listeners of, like, laundry, yeah. tape, and then you, know, you got guys crying in the corner. Like, it's a really like, awkward workplace. So I see Joseph Bouvelos, the Alabama kicker, who obviously had a terrible night. He, like, barely made an extra point. Like, like duck-hunted one through, hit the post on another one, and then their lack of— Shanked to kick out of bounds. Yes, and then their lack of confidence in him led to the terrible fake field goal right. call that we're about to get to. So anyway, I see him right there. I'm like, well, got to ask this guy questions, and he was not having it. I'm not talking. Well, why aren't you talking? It's an open locker room. I'm not talking. Well, I mean, it was the play of the night. People are going to be talking about it in Alabama for, like, what happened. We faked the field goal, and it didn't work. <laughs> and I said, okay. So the long snapper sees him having this moment and, like, interjects. 
uh, Fletcher was his name. Uh, and so he jumps in and says, look, and we talked a little bit about like what they saw and what it was. Can you abort the play? Can you not abort the play? And he basically comes to the conclusion, we would have done it again because of what they saw. And Mac Jones, the backup quarterback, later said they saw like a soft look on the right side of the line. And they credited a Clemson defender for coming in on the backside and doing that. But like to me, who knows nothing about special teams and nothing about field goal safe, the fact that they would stand there and say, oh, we would do it again. And then the special teams coach later, um, who was kind of dodging the media a little bit, like basically said, like, well, I need to see the film. But like – the worst cop out of all time. Yes. Oh, God, that is the worst cop out of all time. But, like, the thought was if they got that look, like, what? because that gave them the right blocking schemes. They would have called it off if they had a traditional look of everyone on the line. But because it was set back, they thought they could get six yards. Now, that's asinine to me. Like, it was a dumb call, and it was even dumber because it was in field goal safe. I mean, but like, it's, it's the teeth of a great defensive line you're going into. Yes. I mean, really? And it was funny. Saban was asked about it. Well, yeah, the kicker is the lead blocker going into Clemson's defensive line. And Saban was asked can't about kick. it. <laughs> can't kick, can't block either. <laughs> Uh, Saban was asked about it, and he took the blame, but then subtly shifted the blame by saying that we, we, you know, we had a block that we missed, basically. And so, you know. He said, I'll take the blame because I'm in charge, but dumber people under me screwed it up. Yeah, yeah but, the, but the idiot missed the block, and we probably should have called off the play. I, that summed up the game in a lot of ways. First of all, you know, just again, a, a, you don't see the glaring tactical errors from a Saban team usually in a big game. And then underscoring, we didn't feel like putting our offense out there was going to do it. And we sure didn't trust our kicker. It was almost like they were kind of out of options at that point. Well, I thought the two worst play calls of the game, like Alabama should have been in this game to like a reasonable heartbeat in the way Oklahoma was in the game in the second half like last week it was sort of like they should have been hanging around they by yardage by what they did not deserve to be blown off the field as the final score indicates um and that was a fourth and six when they faked that kick on third and six they should have run the ball which they did to receive exactly yes which they did to a lot of success now they averaged four yards a carry yeah. but those stretch run plays were gashing them yeah. it's a little bit like the run lane run ohio state game in the sugar bowl yeah. when they just they, they were crushing them running the ball and didn't and just got away from it if it's third and six and you run it for your average four yards then you just go for it on fourth and two now again two has completed 70 percent of his passes this year he's been unbelievably accurate there's reasons to have faith in him but if you're an oc and then that happened again on the next series when they're further behind. Um, and then they had to go for it on fourth down and just miss. So how do you get blown out? Well, that's how you get blown out. I don't know if they're technically in the red zone or not, but you're inside the 30. And if you're inside the 30, you should score. But you need to play call for two downs there. And twice in a row they didn't do it, which is terrible situational football. Terrible situational football by Alabama. And for me to sit here and tell Nick Saban he's playing terrible situational football, it must be really bad. But you're right. No, they, they, they blew those situations. And here's the thing. <clears throat> four yards per carry is good against Clemson. Clemson didn't give up four yards a carry in a single game all year. So you're moving. You're doing pretty well. But they wouldn't stick with it. You know, and I don't, you know, I, obviously 
the RPO, the, you know, the, the quick play action slant game and hitch game and bubble game had been a big part of their offense. But I, I think that they got a little bit too fancy and a little bit too cute. And, and Tua wasn't on the top of his game. Now, on the other hand, Trevor Lawrence was absolutely on the top of his game. And goodness knows how good his game's going to get. You wrote about Trevor. Uh, you talked to somebody of some renown in Clemson lore about him. What did you hear? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind on Trevor a little bit. So I'm covering the game day game uh, in November. Clemson is at BC, and Clemson is you know playing really well. Uh, Anthony Brown, BC's quarterback, got hurt on the first or second series in that game, and they kind of ran him. And I'm watching Trevor Lawrence live now. I'd seen him live against Texas A&M early in the season, but he was he was a relief pitcher at that point, yeah. so you didn't really only nine passes that game. Yeah, so you really didn't know what you had. So I watch him, and I'm like, wow. And a lot of times in the press box, especially if I'm bored in a lopsided game, I just start texting people to see what they think, scouts, coaches, whatever. And a coach whose opinion I trust, especially on quarterbacks, college coach, um, was watching the game, and he was basically like, this kid is the best college prospect since Peyton Manning. So I'm a little bit like, whoa. Now, we may or may not work at a media outlet that likes sort of grand declarations like that because people may click on them. So We build brands people love. We do build brands people love. And our brand can occasionally be hyperbole about sports. We love doing that. So, anyway, look, Trevor Lawrence is really, really good. And, like, at that point, we had probably said, you know, he's the number one recruit in the country, and this guy's probably going to be the number one pick in the draft after three years. Um, so that guy telling me that that night planted the seed in my head. And the season goes on, and people see him. They see him in the ACC championship game. They see him in the playoff. So we wrote this week on Yahoo, like, you know, he and Tua are basically could be generationally like they could be. And Tua still could be. He had a bad night tonight. He threw a couple picks. But, you know, it'll be all season Tua versus Herbert next year. Mark it down. Easy. Done. Um, obviously, the Golden Locks. Uh, he's actually going to take over for LaVisca Chenault, which is going to be unfortunate because Pat has a pretty significant man crush on him. Um, I don't even remember LaVisca Chenault now. <laughs> Come on. Trevor Lawrence owns the world at this point. <laughs> yes, he does. He is the face of the sport, unquestioned, by far and away, no doubt. And uh, so the throw that blew me away tonight, there were two throws that blew me away tonight. One was early on, he started, I felt, with some jitters. Um, there was a, a quick play earlier where Renfro looked like it was like a borderline P.I. call. And uh, it looked like he, like, threw a fastball when he should have thrown a change up, you know, on a quick one. And then they had a little stack formation on the second series, and he just, he just like, sailed one. And so you're like, oh, okay, 19-year-old true freshman in the national title game. From that point on, he was bloodless. But the throw I'll remember was they're on, like, their own 20, and he drops back to their 12. And he throws just a laser beam, like uh, – Remember sharks with laser beams? Like, okay. Like, that thing, he threw 45 yards, 48 yards in the air, and the thing, like, never went more than 10 yards off the ground. Yeah, it was an absolute bullet. It was just a dart right to T. Higgins in stripe. But here's the thing about his bullet. It's like a low-line drive catchable bullet. Like, the thing landed softly in his hands, and then he had a bunch of yak because it landed that way. And and that was, like, the, like, oh, okay. Yeah. That throw. And then he threw another. Th- so a couple of the coaches I talked to about him for some breakdown stories this year, uh, this week, said basically 
if he's on the left hash, now in college the hashes are much wider than the pros. So if you're sitting on the left hash and you throw to the opposite numbers, it's basically a 35-yard throw to get 10 yards. And a coach I talked to about them was like, who studied him a lot this year, was like, look, he just can't do that throw. He actually prefers it. So it's basically like an impossible throw with a high risk for pick six. Well, frankly, Tua threw it for a pick six earlier in the game. He eats that throw for breakfast. Loves it. Did it once tonight on the sideline. You remember because I pointed out to you where – uh, he like high pointed the guy, and yeah. it, I don't remember the receiver. Might have been Ross, and he like dropped in for like yeah. a completion. But like those are the throws where you're like, wow. Right. If he is not, as one scout told me this week, if he's not the one picking the draft, he either screwed something up, yeah. <laughs> or he got hurt. Yes, got hurt or did yeah. something super dumb. Now I hate to resubmit my question, but I'm resubmitting my question. What Clemson legend did you talk to about Trevor Lawrence after the game, and what did he say? A gentleman by the name of Deshaun Watson, one of my favorite guys I've ever covered, unbelievable player, really good guy. Bumped into him in the locker room, and basically he said, Trevor has unlimited potential. Like, he gushed. We wrote a fine story about it on Yahoo.com, which all our listeners can go read. But basically Deshaun Watson was like, wow. And he made a couple good points. Like, same coaching staff he had in 16, right? You got Tony Elliott calling the plays. You got Jeff Scott coaching the receivers. You got Brandon Streeter, the former Clemson quarterback, coaching the quarterbacks. Yeah. Um, you got Dabo sprinting down the field celebrating, <laughs> do, doing his thing. But I think it says something about the culture of Clemson that a couple days after – Deshaun Watson has a terrible, you know, playoff loss. Right. He ships out to the Bay Area and like is whooping it up with his with his boys and like wants to be there. You know, like there's so much about that Clemson culture that is fascinating and compelling and we'll certainly get an off season of studying it. Yeah. But Deshaun Watson being there in a purple hoodie with confetti covering his feet, yeah. like kinda kinda celebrating. I mean, look, he's like a you know, a world-class NFL superstar at this point, yeah. and he's no. back. Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. It really is, and especially, too, if you take into consideration that Deshaun was tight with Kelly Bryant, and Kelly Bryant lost the job in acrimonious circumstances and left the program, but the program is bigger, I think, than the individual friendships, and so there's Deshaun celebrating with the guy that ran off Kelly Bryant. That's... It's really impressive, and the, the whole thing. I mean, what what Dabo's done there is unbelievable, and you know, is really we're working on being the stuff of legend. I wrote some about uh, you know Dabo now has his won as many national titles as Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno. I mean, think about that. It's, uh, he's forty nine years old. Uh, it's pretty remarkable what he has done there. In two and three years, only 10 teams in the history of college football, if you go back to the AP poll starting in 1936, have won two out of three. But, okay, it wasn't just Trevor Lawrence. It's Justin Ross making these ridiculous catches. It's T. Higgins making this unbelievable catch in the end zone. What was your you know, takeaway watching the skill position guys for Clemson? Again, doing what they did to Notre Dame. Well, I think that speaks to a bigger point that we're going to get to. Like, they ain't going away, Pat. They are not going away. Justin Ross, like OBJ to ball, like 25 yards down the field. I'm a huge T. Higgins fan. If you recall, going into the game, actually, Ross had more yards. But I, I called a huge game for T. Higgins. I just think, like, look, they have a pair of 6'4", 210-pound future first-round picks. Yeah. If this sounds familiar, Clemson, it actually is because they've had like six of these guys roll through. 
um, be it uh, you know DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, they just like they've just they've recruited. Give them credit, like guy after guy here, and they've developed big time guys who've gone on and produced at the next level. And uh, but boy, like was I blown away again by their you know by their skill. I mean, you think back to that A and M game earlier in the year, and T Hig, you know Trevor Lawrence's first pass in that game is a touchdown. Well, that was T. Higgins more than Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence made a nice throw. T. Higgins just made a monster catch, like posted up, like the, you know, the the DB, you know, like a, like a like a like a midget in the post, and like swat, you know, swats the ball, and then like rolls in and and you know rolls on the field and scores. Like they have a remarkable collection of talent. There'll be some holes to fill, but if you're gonna sit here and tell me you're not gonna make Clemson number one next year with Trevor Lawrence throwing darts. And you have Justin Ross and T. Higgins on the outside. And Murray Rogers, who had a quiet but nice little night tonight, and he can run the jet sweeps. And then you have Travis Etienne, who scored three touchdowns. Three touchdowns. You know, like that is a just decadent combination of skill. Decadent's a good word for it. Um, I agree. And that's the thing is, is now, okay, are we looking at a new world order? Because Alabama brings back a ton of experience and talent as well next year, starting with Tua. And with all of the uh, all the all the skill position guys that they're bringing back, but they just got housed by another team that's every bit as young and talented. So, as you said, I think you absolutely start with Clemson number one, Alabama number two. Is this a start of a new era where Clemson rules the sport? I think there's an argument for that, and I think we'll hear their argument a lot in the offseason, and it's going to be hard to go against it. Now, I haven't drilled down on who Bama has back. There's still a lot of NFL declarations to come. I mean, if this recruiting class holds, Alabama will have three of the last four number one recruiting classes. They're picking nationally. They're picking. They're not, like, recruiting. They're, like, yes. They are literally drafting at this point from high school. So, like – Let's let's not write off the Todd long term. They're going to be fine. But right now, with what Clemson has back in the you, people don't like pick people preseason because the left guard's coming back, right? Like <laughs> they want the quarterback, they want the tailback, and they want the receivers. And defensively, you know, there's some there's some dudes back for Clemson. But at the end of the day, like losing those Z linemen, there will be a dip defensively. But you can't argue that offensively they're going to be able to score on anyone. The poor ACC, by the way. My oh God. My God. Yo, you want to play against that, that club for the next two years? Yeah. Oh Especially, like, with, like, who's next? Yeah. Like, who is your foil? <laughs> right. I mean, that's a problem for the ACC. Nobody is close to competing with Clemson. Yes. You know? Or is it if you work in the ACC office? Because sometimes when leagues are so bad underneath the top team, it really helps. Because they're not, like, they're, you're not going to lose that random game at Pitt because they stink. You know, or they stink. They, like, there's just, when there's no one in your league, per se, in your league, to use awful cliches left and right, like, that's maybe good. Like, if your division sure. doesn't present copious. I, I mean, look, if yes, if, if Clemson next year rolls 13-0 and and beats everybody by three touchdowns, we know what's happening. They're going to the playoff again. So yes. Yeah. I don't think Syracuse is going to slow them down. <laughs> Yeah, or anybody in the Atlantic Division, really. Um, but so, okay, if if you are an Alabama fan now and you have watched this and and you want to call into Paul Feinbaum and just you know 
rend your garments and tear your hair and and announce that life as you know it is ending is it is it is it an overreaction what how should alabama fans feel today well fire saban that's really where you need to start right <laughs> i mean what is that guy really done I mean, he's only won five of the last ten titles. That's all. I mean, you really need to be on a better clip than a title every other year if you're going to be an Alabama coach. So, come on, Nick. Get with it. Um, I feel like there's going to be significant staff changes. I think it starts with Tosh Lapoy, the defense coordinator. I think he makes $1.2 million, And I feel like he's run his course at Alabama. I'd be stunned if he's back on that staff next year, certainly in that position. He's been a dynamic recruiter and a good soldier. But – I almost think Nick Saban, like, everyone likes continuity. I almost feel like Nick Saban wants changes. Like, he needs people energized, and he wears them out. So who does Mike Loxley take with him? Is Josh Gaddis his OC? Mm -hmm. Does Butch Jones go with him? Does Butch Jones stay? Does Dan Enos become the OC? You know, obviously he and Tua had a good vibe this year going on. Like, there, we could do a whole podcast on, like, what happens next at Alabama. Because, obviously, if you lose one game, heads need to roll. I'm joking. But, like, but there will be – the Alabama coaching staff will look drastically different this season than last season. Yeah. Now, will it really matter? Like, who even remembers Brian Dayball? You know what I mean? Like, he, he won the national title as the OC last year, and then he's – he and old boy Josh Allen are up there with the Bills chucking it around a little bit. But, like, they were just like, yeah. Yeah, he won the he won the national title. Like, I don't know if they nudged him out the door or if he went on his own. But like, he won the national title. We didn't like him very much. So you know. <laughs> yeah, he it was a subpar national title victory. Yeah. I mean, God bless. Like, so I don't think Saban is going to take status quo off this. Oh God, no. You know, that's the one thing, and that's one of the reasons he's that great. Is that, you know, he may have sat there in the press conference, and I was in there and say, you know, I was really proud of this team and everything they accomplished and getting here was great. But you know what? He, you know what? It was not great. As a matter of fact, shoot, I forgot to use it in my column, but Tua said five words, good is not good enough. And that basically, that describes the Alabama ethos and it describes what this season was for them. And it's funny now that I think about it too, with him even it's the case. And I, I go back, the first time I saw him live was uh, – Man, the first time I saw him live was against Tennessee in Knoxville this year. And he threw several balls. He made the wrong reads and threw into double coverage, but he threw them so well that it didn't matter, and it was Tennessee. You do that, we saw the triple coverage throw that was an interception. It's Clemson. This one was a little further off target. You start you get away with those mistakes for a few weeks and all of a sudden you think you're you're okay, you know? And so I th- I would just wonder he it's probably a good lesson for him to to tighten up on some of his reads because he made a couple of bad ones uh in this game. All right, a couple other things we want to get to, Pete. Um one. Okay. Clemson beats Alabama by or beats Notre Dame by twenty seven. Universally everybody Notre Dame didn't belong in the playoff. They beat Alabama by 28. Should Notre Dame feel a little better today? I think Notre Dame feels a little better today. I do. And, look, Notre Dame beat everyone on their really rigorous on-paper schedule. Like, it's not Notre Dame's fault. They were a bunch of paper tigers. Like, if you schedule Virginia Tech, Florida State, Stanford, et cetera, Michigan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you beat them all, and it wasn't like – you know, it wasn't smoke and mirrors. Like, they were a really good, undefeated 12-0 team. Like, even, like, 
I was laughing. It was like Jack Swarbrick was like, we'll play 13 games if it ends the nonsense. But I don't know. We're, we are in this era of cattiness in college football oh. right now where everything is just complained about. It's just like it's turning me prematurely gray. So um, I think Notre Dame coaches watched like Clemson pretty much like swallow Alabama's offense. Tonight. They're like, you know what? Maybe we don't feel so bad. Ian Book looked a little bit overwhelmed in that right. in that game. So I do feel like, thankfully, it will temper that uh, the crying and complaining yeah. and the nonsense. Over well, and yeah, I mean, it was you know this ridiculousness. Of, they, they don't play in a conference. They don't play anybody. Well, yes, they do. As a matter of fact, they played eleven Power Five schools plus Ball State. If I if I'm correct, so you know they they played. Oh, did they play Navy too? So all right. 10 Power 5 schools, uh, but still, I mean, and they beat them all. That schedule is going to get you in the playoff every year. And, yeah, they right, they lost to a Clemson team, but maybe this Clemson team is historically great. And that's one of the things. We did talk about Alabama throughout the season as a potentially historically great team. They will not go down this way, but maybe Clemson should at 15-0. and 0, And having beaten everybody as badly as they did – the whole way, you win two playoff games by 55 points against undefeated teams. I think you're one of the all-time great teams. Do you, are you going to go with that? Yeah, no, I agree. I actually had not thought about that, so you mentioned it right now. You go to College Station and win, and that's really your only close game of the season other than Syracuse at home when your quarterback gets hurt. Right. Um, and at A&M, Kelly Bryant played most of the game. Yes, exactly. So the iteration that – I mean, the – like again, Florida State's just got awful, but they went fifty-nine to ten in Tallahassee. They beat Louisville seventy-seven to sixteen. They struggled at Boston College and won twenty-seven to seven. Um, yeah, they you know they didn't play great against South Carolina. How about this? South Carolina scored thirty-five yeah. on them. Alabama scored sixteen. Like ooh, yeah. ooh, that's I would not I would not have made that bet you know, before the season that they would score a few more touchdowns than that. But even, shoot, Pitt pretty much put up the same fight Alabama did. It was 42-10 to 10 in that game. That's, That's like true. not not all that different. Yeah, and Notre Dame got blown out by less. Yeah, okay. Let's uh, if close up on, on this thought. Uh, first, obviously, playoff championship in the Bay Area. Uh, there were empty seats, although not like acres of empty seats. Uh, but what did you think of the experience here from a playoff standpoint in the Bay Area? Yeah. Well, I'll preface this by saying I like my job. I'm not the guy who complains a lot about, like, whatever stuff. So San Jose, like, I had a perfectly fine time here. You know, you and I went out to a couple nice dinners and uh, had a good time. And, like, it was perfectly pleasant. In comparison to other big bowl game venues, did this have a buzz and a feel? No. I mean, San Jose, the joke was it's like San Jersey. There's, like, not a lot of there there. There's just, like, traffic and chain restaurants. Now, again, I'm not sitting here riffing on San Jose. It's a fine American city. There's great technological advancements here. It's perfectly fine. But at no point until maybe today at noon did it feel like, oh, you're at a big game. You know, we've all been to big games at the Super Bowls. We've been to, like, cool stuff, Final Four. Like, you know, you walk in the hotel lobby or out the night before, you can feel it. There's a buzz. There ain't no buzz in San Jose. So um, was it some, like, crazy epic fail? No. But, like, would you bring it back here? Mm, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, look, there's that immaculate new stadium coming to L.A., and 
L.A. makes a lot more sense. I just thought the worst part of this was, what are you making fans in the Southeast pay a grand to fly here for? And then you're sticking them, and they got to pretty much go eat at Chili's because they're in San Jose. So, like, you know, this was not a destination. Like, you're, New Orleans is the title game next year. Now, if you're in Gouger, a hotel in the room in New Orleans, well, at least you're in New Orleans. Right. You know, like, yeah. there's cool stuff to do. Now, you know, San Francisco is obviously close by, but it's not really close. No. Like, two and a half hours in, like, peak traffic? Or, like, you know, it's still 45 miles away. So, uh, yeah, it was just, like, disappointing from, like, as someone who's gone to a lot of big events like you have, Pat, like, it did not have a big event feel. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I agree with you across the board. It's not like this was a catastrophe or anything like that. But it wasn't as good as it can be. And that, yeah, and that's partially on the playoff committee for putting it here. You know, it's, it's geographically given the lay of the football land it's out of the way uh it's a very expensive city and then the circumstance that conspired against the playoff is just that it's alabama and clemson again i think those fans are tapped out a bit financially that it's just four years in a row that you're shelling out money and this is by far the most expensive and you know nobody's driving here from from Spartanburg, and nobody's driving here from Dothan. So, you know, you, you, the, the choice is how much, you know, do you want to spend? And if you've already been been putting it out for three straight years, you might say, this is one I'm sitting out. So, no, it was not a great location, but it didn't really ruin the event, I don't think. New Orleans will be fantastic. Uh, it That's a place, like you said, I mean, here, yeah, there's multiple little, like, bergs, basically. Not little. It's San Francisco. It's San Jose. It's Oakland. It's Santa Clara. Uh, but it's very spread out. And New Orleans, everybody's going to be there, and they're going to be downtown, and it's a great downtown city. And so it'll be a great scene no matter who is there, I would think, next year. Yeah. Pat and I are in the tank for New Orleans. It's like a place to go. We like to eat there. Yes. And occasionally we may have an alcoholic beverage. And they do serve them. Sources, colon, <laughs> alcoholic beverages are served in the city of New Orleans. We would like that to remain in 2020. So we're going to ask our friends, Jeff Duncan and Brett Anderson, there in New Orleans, to make sure alcoholic beverages are available in the city for that. But New Orleans is an experience. Like, you you walk out of a hotel in New Orleans for a Final Four, for a Sugar Bowl, or for whatever, and you, you feel it in your ribs. You know what I mean? Like, Instant buzz. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a party city. Yes. Yes. San Jose, I will just say, is not a party city. Like, you don't want to have your bachelor party in San Jose. <laughs> so, yeah, don't alcohol. Don't. Uh, outlaw alcohol in New Orleans in the next year. Uh, in interest of full disclosure, now I'll let Pete finish his uh, his glass of wine. I will finish my beer bottle, and we will finish this podcast. Thank you very much for listening all season. Uh, we've had a great time. I hope you all have had a great time. We will certainly continue with the podcast uh, going forward here in 2019. But uh, enjoy, and uh, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you later.